Yeah, listeners, so and the recording of this, originally Dunkirk was going to be part of the show, but there were so many listener emails and Phil and I had so much to say, we had to make it its own mini episode. It's not even that mini. It's not a mini, it's like a whole other episode yeah. just on Dunkirk. So hopefully that's enjoyable, hopefully that means you can get into your teeth into it properly. And We've all gone into quite some detail there, but I'm sure we haven't mentioned everything we could have mentioned either. <laughs> we could have gone on, but there you go. Right, well, uh, there you go. Enjoy it and uh, let us know your thoughts at the end. Well, here it is, listeners. Can you believe it? We've actually arrived at the the review of Dunkirk. It's been waiting. Thank you very much to those who have been when waiting. When you say it's been waiting, you mean we've <laughs> all been waiting for you. Yes, yeah, correct. That's right. But we've both seen it, and we've both seen it in the IMAX. We've seen it as it was meant to be shot and seen and watched and all that sort of stuff. And here we go. What's going to happen? Is Laurie going to love it? Is he going to hate it? Is he going to say something about Hans Zimmer? Let's find out. <laughs> it's, are we going to do a little big announcement thing? I feel like we need to do something a bit more, more momentous because we've delayed this and we've hyped it up a bit. So can we get a little bit more of a fanfare going oh, you on? Mean you mean as in this is the major review this week? Yeah, let's do it. Should All we right. do it? Okay, let's do it. Okay, so how about... Uh, listeners, Dunkirk is this week's... Big review. Dramatic stuff. It's entirely appropriate, in fact. <laughs> Listeners, Phil said before we started recording that no one needs to know the story of this. Dunkirk is a massive evacuation from the beaches of Dunkirk of British and French troops back to mainland England, England because they had failed in an offensive uh, in France itself. The Germans had pushed them right back. They were taking heavy losses, time to evacuate. And well, in the film and in history at the time, I suppose, they were considering the fact that this might lead to invasion of England. So they needed all the military back home to defend on the home front. As it turned out, that isn't what happened, but that's the mood of the film, isn't it? Yep, told in three parts. You've got the land story, you've got the air story with Tom Hardy as a pilot, and then you've got the sea story, which has got Mark Rylance as one of the boats that came to uh, Britain and France's aid. That was the big thing. Lots of civilian vessels came to aid in the evacuation because the waters were very shallow, so it was hard for big boats, destroyers and things to get there uh, without being absolutely destroyed uh, by German air cover, right? Indeed, yep. Christopher Nolan has uh, written this film as well as directed it and it seems to be a bit of a passion project for him. It's the first time he's done something akin to a true story, I guess, yeah. in the sense that it's based in real life and yet still it has all the trademarks of his style and approach and almost it's like the concentrate of all the things that he's done in his previous films. You think so? Yeah, I do. I think he's gone on record talking about how uh, for this film he wanted to be able to do what he's done in the third act of lots of his films with different timelines cutting together and kind of amplifying the tension. But he wanted to stretch that out over an entire film. And uh, I heard an interview of him talking in which he said he wanted to do the equivalent of, I'm not sure what the technical name is of the sound, but you know that sound which keeps on going up and up and up. Oh yeah, there's a special effect. Um, it's, you see, if you can imagine three octaves on a piano, listeners, as, one, as the top octave gets higher and higher, it gets quieter and quieter, whereas the low octave starts out quiet and gets louder and louder. And that continues happening and the top octave becomes the bottom octave. So it sounds like the note is continually rising higher because as the note goes higher, the volume goes low. Makes sense? Yeah, so it's like an infinite loop of tension rising. That's it, yeah. And that's kind of what he was hoping to go for with the nature of this film. And so, yeah. So in other words, it gets you know more intense without going anywhere. I think that's he also it. said he wants to do 
Uh, two scenes together, two plus two, but equals five because of their combined effect. That, that is a literal quote. quote from something he said to film. Good four. job. I mean, do you know? Do you know who else said that, Phil? Who? Do you know where that quote's from? That's from 1984, and it's symbolic of the end of logic and reason and civil society. <laughs> so it's an interesting thing for him to um, to use to describe his own film. I love the fact that <laughs> a tiny little quote, like an offhand comment, it's already got your blood boiling. It's not. I'm doing it deliberately for you, Phil. It's just a bit of life and colour. You don't know. I promise you, you don't know how I feel yet. Right. Should we play a little bit of a clip or a trailer one thing i think we need to say first because it's technical stuff it doesn't really relate to the film is he's filmed this in poncy 70 millimeter actual <laughs> film and it was really weird it's the only film i think i've seen in living memory except some press screenings where someone has come in and made an announcement about the film before watching it everyone welcome to the bfi amex it's actually biggest big, screen in biggest the, screen in in the yeah. country yeah blah 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 blah. boring boring can we watch the film That's i quite liked I that Did i quite you? liked it more I enjoyed... of an event isn't it it's like going to a haunted house or something not a haunted house more like a theater production it's the best way you could watch a film there's not many theater productions that start that way no but i think it's important to note the information that goes into it it's so important and... That's why we're doing it now so what is 70 mil and why did he use it phil it's basically the largest uh, analog format you can film on and it needs special IMAX cameras. There weren't that many in use. Uh, Chris Nolan has been using them more and more in his films. He used it way back in The Dark Knight for certain sequences. And then he used it again in Interstellar. And he's slowly, slowly been pushing this as a new best way to shoot and record film. And he's very much an opponent of digital formatting, which seems to be taking over the film industry with the red camera. Yeah, yeah. He says this is the best way you can see the film. It's got the most vivid colours, the most intense sort of detail. I think the guy said it was 18K versus the 4K that you might get with this. Right, right. And so he's very much a fan of the traditional film technique. And this is the extreme end of that. And it's against the digital side of things. Let me tell you, listeners, practically for you and I sat in the audience, what that means is this screen is there's not so much of the letterbox effect. It doesn't feel very widescreen. It actually feels like an old fashioned four ratio four three TV, but gigantic uh, and in a lot of detail. So it's quite overwhelming and quite immersive. And, you know, and it's odd because there are sections in the film that do go back to letterbox because obviously it must have been so expensive or impractical for him to film it in entirely that film stock. So there's a weird jarring moment where it swaps from full height to letterbox and all that kind of stuff plus you also get the little flies and snakes uh, that float around on the film's top well it's, it's, it's actual, actual film. film yeah so it's got yeah. and apparently it came in trucks and they had to have a team put it together knit stitch it together well, over I've a long been, and they time. were proudly telling us how many miles of film it was and everything else but you know what like instantly there was a failure there from chris tvanolan's uh, stated goals because at one point i thought there was a plane coming in the sky and that's what everyone was looking at but it turned out just to be an artifact on the film so that that kind of wrecked my emotion (laughs) if you want to be literal about it what did you make just before you get into the real nitty-gritty of the actual imax experience oh it's fine you know i get it the thing is it and what the thing that was most fine about it and i was most pleased about was that it wasn't that much more expensive than a regular cinema ticket if it had been you know 20 pounds over i would think what a waste of money like there's no point to this and I'm tempted to draw parallels with people who say that vinyl is the only way to listen to music. I think that's rubbish. Uh, And it's really interesting. Like, uh, I'm going to compare it to Steven Soderbergh later when we talk about Logan Lucky, because he's talked about how great digital film is. And in particular, how flexible it is, how much cheaper it is, and, uh, you know, how it's going to open up the world of filmmaking to people to just get on with the film itself. And he sort of, I don't know that he'd agree with the purists, people who say you've got to spend millions of pounds with clunky, huge machines, a totally impractical shoot because it's more pure or something. So I have mixed feelings on the whole. 
But it was, yeah, overall felt positive. I like the surround sound more than the visuals. The sound I thought was good, the surround sound, and I thought the visuals, personally, I loved it. I loved the fact that it was sort of overwhelming me. And for this particular film, I think it suited quite well, in fact. So should we play a clip and then we'll get into the actual Yeah, and film. apologies, listeners, that's all the technical stuff out of the way. We won't return to that unless we've got a good reason to do so. So I think we'll actually play a trailer because one of the features of this film is that there's not an awful lot of dialogue and clips are going to feel a bit odd. So a trailer will do better for mood and ambience and all that, right? Etc. cetera, yeah. Here we go. What has happened is a colossal military disaster. We shall go on to the end. We shall never surrender. The call went out. We have to go to Dunkirk. Ready on the stern line. What are you doing? You know where we're going. Into war, George. I'll be useful, sir. One of ours. He's on me. I'm on him. The ship's about to leave. Down you go. They need to send more ships. Every hour the enemy pushes closer. They've activated the civilian boats. Civilians? We need destroyers. Where are we going? Dunkirk! I'm not going back. We go, they will die. You should be at home! There's no hiding from this, son. We have a job to do. Turn it around! We shall fight on the beaches. We'll fight on the landing grounds. We shall never surrender. We shall never surrender. We shall never surrender. Hmm, very glum. Indeed. Laurie, what is your main thing that you took away having seen this film? Now, Phil, I'm going to say this and it's going to sound provocative. And I promise to you and all the other listeners out there, I don't actually mean it to be. But the honest experience was quite blank. When I came out, I felt kind of a a bit empty. But that's not because the film is empty. It's because, as you rightly say, it's overwhelming. And I don't think there'll be many people leaving with a clear emotion or a clear thing to chew over at the end of Dunkirk. Do you agree with me? I do. I wouldn't express it as blank, though. I think overwhelming so that you don't really know what you what sort of thought to have in your head and you're kind of waiting for it all to settle because you've just been bombarded, much like you if you're on that beach, bombarded with stuff and information and difficulty and challenges. And, and what does that mean? What does What would it actually be like to be on that beach? And in some ways, I think the things which I think I'm going to pick out on that I didn't really enjoy in the film are entirely Christopher Nolan's intention and designed, I think, to make you feel a certain way. I think Christopher Nolan is very much concerned with pushing how you feel, not what you think and not what you take away. Well, now that's really interesting because I've got kind of the opposite thing to say. And I also think it's entirely due to his approach and his style. Uh, We'll come on to that in a minute. Listeners, just so you know, Phil and I agreed that this is technically going to be a spoiler review. Not that there really are very many spoilers in the film, but if you still haven't seen it, you might want to avoid what we're saying. (laughs) So annoying, isn't it? Because we're taking so long to get here 
now we're saying other people might not want it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We're assuming that the people who yeah. want it have seen it, so yes. that means we can talk about it freely. And because the film is sparse in its dialogue, it's really about moments and particular uh, incidents in the film that you'd have to kind of talk That's about right. yeah, to yeah, really yeah. De- deal with it. So if I can clarify what I meant there, Phil, and you can come back at me. It's interesting you say he's targeting emotions because as well as being blank, the other thing I characterise my emotional state as during the film is flat. And I think that's actually maybe unintentionally altered the design. So there's a few different things that contribute to that. Most obvious for me, as you rightly point out, is the score by Hans Zimmer. Now, it's omnipresent. It doesn't stop. It's got that sort of constant escalating sound effect that we talked about earlier. It's quite heavily compressed as well. So... You know, we talked about compression before, Phil, and it's a good metaphor as well. What happens with compression listeners is that when you've got a sound wave, there are some parts of the sound wave that are very high and some parts that are very low. Compression shrinks the top bits and beefs up the little bits. So you end up with a flatter range of things. So what that often means is you get a louder overall volume because you can push it up. The peaks don't exceed the limits or anything like that. But it also means that dynamically it's flat. You don't have such pronounced peaks and troughs. Everything is more So it's more like a tidal wave of sound. No, not like a tidal wave. More like a flat pool, Phil. It doesn't change. It's like it's completely consistent. Whereas if you're in the sea and there are waves, that's the complete opposite. No, but I mean in terms of like a wall of sound hitting Fine. you. A wall Equally, of sound. everything is equal. There's no distinction. Exactly. And with that being the case, that's a flat experience, isn't it? It's the same with the dialogue. And actually, I think it's the same with the story as well. Because Christopher Nolan's attempt to split it into three different perspectives, I think, is a good one. But his insistence on mucking around with the timeline so that we actually see events happen two or three times, the same event from different angles, that also flattens it out because it means there's not a single climax. Uh, and to any point in the story is there you or you see the same event through people's different eyes several times so it's not like oh we're building up to a moment and the moment's gone and i'm thinking about the moment it's like we see that moment happen a few times often it's prefigured then it's experienced then it's looked back in retrospect and that flattens out the drama of the moment isn't it if, if it only happens once then it's higher impact whereas if it happens a few times it flattens it out. Do you not that think... That and... <laughs> one more thing to say. The lack of dialogue as well means that the emotion in the film it has to depend on those other things, on the music and on the story structure, not on the people themselves. You've just got to try and read it in their expressions and their performance, but the dialogue isn't there to really create super intense moments. I can't remember a single line, actually, Phil, I other disagree. than the ones in the trailer. I disagree. I think, actually, it focused in on a couple of people well. I think Harry Styles, actually, in some ways, becomes the a figurehead for the... He, I think he probably had the most lines in the film. Weirdly, yeah. And I think he did a good job. But those young guys, the the, the one who was a, actually a French person dressed up as a British soldier, yep. and his, his other buddy who met right at the very beginning... I think those three are the the characters that you're following. And I think it traces them quite well. I do know what you mean. I had a problem with the chronology and the idea of seeing the same moment again and again from different perspectives. I really do think that killed the tension. Exactly, the drama kind of goes, doesn't it? Which is odd because I think what he was hoping to do was ramp it up because you see see it building and building. Even though you kind of know what's going to happen, you also don't know how it gets there and the idea is you're kind of piecing it together as the film progresses but i do think there is actually a climax that you're missing entirely which is when the music changes and that is when all those boats arrive and then you've got yeah. that very patriotic well, moment where how, they arrive <laughs> how interesting that you should say i that. didn't like that moment uh, i have to say did you not why not i thought it was hollow and i thought it was bizarrely unrealistic and patriotic you thought it was unrealistic well in terms of it just didn't fit with the rest of the film it suddenly felt like 
this weird over sentimental part of this very bleak horrible movie and it made it feel cheesy rather than brave and rather than uh triumphant oddly i thought it was because it was using film techniques to really crescendo this moment into something heart stirring it actually made it fall flat because i was like no i don't want to feel what you tell me to feel it should be really it should be that i feel it already well, I, that's really two things to say. Number one is that it's interesting you describe that as a climax because that is not the end of the film by any means. Not just that film, but the musical cue you're referring to happens again later. They do it again. So With that the is, Spitfire gliding. Uh, either that or when they get home. But the what it is, and it's interesting because there was a listener, Esther tweeted in about this. She wanted to know specifically how I'd feel about it because the music you're referring to is Enigma Variations by Edward Elgar. Which is classic British sort of music, well, It's isn't very it? stirring and it's been incredibly slowed down. So it's more like a drone than anything else. And it, I thought it was a really silly thing to use it twice because that kind of thing, exactly as we're talking about, and it's interesting that we share this view, you've got to just do it the once and it's got to be the high point. You can't use it again. So I thought it flattened the moment you're talking about anyway. And I disagree, actually. I thought that was fine. I think if there's anything that people want to see in a film about Dunkirk, it's to be stirred from the fact that here are these ordinary people who could have just stayed at home, but they wanted to help their boys, no matter how shell-shocked and terrified they might be, get home again. So I don't have any problem with having my emotions you know, pricked at that point. I disagree, because I think the whole nature of the film, the genre of the film, in my opinion, and maybe people will disagree with this, I think it's a disaster movie. That's the, the nature oh, of the film. You said that to me, in fact. Yeah. I think the whole thing is constructed as this kind of increasingly worse situation and it's about survival i mean the tagline that went round, i think at the beginning of the film or on the posters is survival is victory and so it's a survival movie it's can these people survive in worsening scenario that keeps on getting worse and worse and worse and i hate disaster movies i find them i don't know why people would watch them in the same way i don't really understand horror movies why would you want to experience something which is a tragedy and awful and maybe that is the nature of, again, what Christopher Nolan wants to do. He just designs this sort of disaster movie and then it has this victory at the end when the troops make it home. But for me, it meant that having the whole thing be a disaster movie and then having this sort of triumphant attempt to be sort of like stirring up a victory, it just, it was, I felt hollow, kind of like you were saying, it didn't really connect with me. And actually, I felt much more like the soldiers kind of when they walked in and they said, oh, everyone's going to think we're a failure than I did think, oh, this is a tremendous victory. Interesting. Well, maybe that's just all down to his skill and maybe it's more ambiguous than we would like to think. Uh, it's a funny thing because I really couldn't figure out how I felt about it. And listeners, you might think, based on what Phil and I are saying, that we didn't like it. But uh, I, no, I, I did I disagree. Like it. Uh, yeah, I think it's I did enjoy got it. some good bits to it, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it is certainly an experience, as everyone is saying. It's one of the very few films that fully commits to that idea as well, that films should be about an experience and about orientating the audience in an experience rather than telling a story. It's not really a story, is it? Because it's so small. And although there are kind of personal threads to it, they're very muted. They don't, they don't seem to go anywhere. I think the one with the most drama in it, I guess, is the boys in the boat. Uh, sorry, that could be two things, couldn't it? <laughs> I mean, Harry Styles and co. That was a good scene when they are hiding out in an oil tanker and some German troops use it for target practice. So they're all trying to be safe and yet they've got bullets flying through the hull of this boat. I thought that was, that was pretty uh, an interesting idea. I guess the boat with Mark Rylance and co was kind of all right, but I didn't think they gave Mark Rylance enough to work with and he's a really good actor. But the fact that a boy gets killed, <laughs> I just... 
it was weirdly like you didn't even really think about it. it that was slightly mishandled, I thought. I so thought the drama was, wasn't there. I thought that was a miscue as well because I feel like it was synthesizing drama when it was not needed or maybe it was based on some account that Possibly. he read or something like that but you've got dunkirk which is this massive event why are you needing to add more drama well, to I that guess it, it's with a boy hitting his head it's hinting at the long tail isn't it because that's not really about that boy it's about cillian murphy or killian murphy's character who's shell-shocked and horrified he did a good job i thought and it was it was nice to see him turn up later well, later and earlier, according to Christopher Nolan's timeline thing, on the boat, being a sort of solid captain, let's be calm, and then he'd been turned into this sort of shivering wreck because he'd been in a boat explosion, right? Mm. But the best bit, Phil, for me, and the bit that really made me think, wow, I've made a mistake in all my fears, is the opening scene. I thought that was brilliant. When they're walking through the town? Yeah. but I thought that was magnificent. I was like, wow. So the film started way higher for me, and then it slowly diminished because it was constantly trying to rise up the tension and the excitement which in turn made it flat right yeah, yeah. It, it kind of you kind of you de- you deaden to it you go numb to it and so i agree i think the opening is fantastic colors um, the the walking through the town just beautiful and the boy's performance was very good he sort of looked frightened but also resigned to whatever was going on uh, and the sound was fantastic in that it's the loudest and most violent gunshots i think i've ever heard terrifying and it did occur to me that in a deserted town when a gunshot rings out yeah it would be just like that and horrible um, something to add that uh, other people have mentioned, and I think is actually quite important, is that this is a war movie that is purporting to show an ugly side of things, right? You get the weirdly uh, not heroic, not brothers in arms, the attitude of the soldiers who push people away and say, no, this bit's not for you. And they have an opportunity to help each other, but they don't. And and these two young guys that we're following are actually stowaways and they're getting off the boat earlier sort than of they cowards should. cowards in yeah, one yeah. sense. So it's showcasing that ugly side of things. And yet, as you don't see, there's no blood, is there? So one of the things that should characterise a war movie like this, especially when there's a scene in which someone is blown up right next to someone else. Do you remember that? When they're lying on the beach, a guy mm. gets hit completely by a bomb, but he's nowhere to be seen from that point on. I think uh, it's just a bit of a weird, dishonest thing from Christopher Nolan to try and portray everything else with grit and lack of glamour and then pretend that it was bloodless. And maybe he's going to say that's fine because it opens it up to a bigger audience. But it's not like I want to see bloody violence. But I think there were so many scenes in which it broke the realism of everything that was going I on. Didn't didn't even cross my mind once. Did I it have not? To be honest. Okay. I quite liked the uh, the gritty side. I liked that conversation in the boat when they're trying to choose somebody to get off the boat so they can live. And I thought I thought yeah I could connect with that. That was when they feel these soldiers suddenly look very boyish and young and terrified. And they're just afraid and they just want to go home. But I, again, I feel like we're kind of focusing in on like random little bits that maybe didn't work for us. What was the, the things which really did work for you other than the sound? I really loved all of the aerial sequences. I thought they were fantastic. It was brilliant seeing these planes fly. And I, as I understand it, they were real planes that were actually flown uh, and shot. Oh, is that right? And he, he went in the planes to see what it would be like to try and uh, experience what it, what it is being in the cockpit. And so they, the way that they were shot was kind of reflecting that i thought all of that was brilliant i was really invested in tom hardy's character and the dog fights i thought were brilliant uh yeah i i thought the the aerial things were fine i didn't think they were that much more spectacular than other things i've seen and my feeling was that the stuff that made that emotionally satisfying is all in the past so 
our familiarity with dogfights and pilots even a film like star wars a lot of the work has already been done for christopher nolan at that point which is why he can afford to put very little dialogue in there and film it in quite an ordinary way because it wasn't that dramatic it wasn't dramatically shot was it the, the planes themselves were the drama and what was happening to the pilots were so i thought it was fine but i didn't think it was standout actually the thing that i enjoyed the most and maybe this sounds like a pretentious thing to say uh, was a lot of the camera work actually i was really quite impressed by some of the choices because you know, I've, I think most people have a, a vague idea of what they imagined Dunkirk to look like. I certainly didn't expect Christopher Nolan to show so much of the scale of the beach. It looked like an absolutely massive beach that went just huge. And then, it, therefore, it made sense that you can have 300,000 soldiers there all standing in lines as opposed to a, you know, a heaving mass. A rabble. Of pe- yeah. And I thought that was really clever. And the way that the camera combined aerial views with sort of a lot of perspective views and close up camera work as well just gave me a real sense that, yes, this is a huge thing, but actually the people in it were still isolated. And it's weird. It's a weird way to show isolation within a heaving sort of crowd. And there are lots of, um, I can't think of the right angle, but lots of perspective shots where you would have, and I, I noticed it again and again. Of the... Exactly. So you would see at quite a short angle, massive lines or piers disappearing off into the vanishing point of the horizon. And I just thought that was quite a clever thing to do to show you the scale. And it happened again and again and again with, with the angles of the boats as well. Check it out, listeners. It's sort of people almost staring at you from within the frame, but the camera is at just the angle so you can see huge depth and distance behind them. Without them looking at it. Yeah, and I thought, what a clever way to immerse you in the depth of the surroundings without even having to bother with 3D. Mm. Do you know who did the uh, cinematography? I don't. Hoyt van Hoytemer, which is a a funny name. (laughs) But yeah, keep an eye out for that, listeners, because he is the up-and-coming superstar of cinematography. And I think basically in the future, a bit like, what's his name? Who's the guy who did Skyfall? who's never won an Oscar, but he's always the cinematographer. Roger Deakins, I think it is. Yes, that's right. I think he's going to be a future Roger Deakins. He did win, I think, last year, didn't he, for editing or something like that. I can't remember, yeah. I think that's basically all I want to say. I didn't really like Kenneth Branagh. I thought he was cringy every single time I said anything. Home, just get over it. He said it twice, and it was just like, ugh. But he is, you know, a genuinely a great actor, Phil. And apparently, no, no, apparently so. I've seen him be brilliant in all kinds of things. Whenever I see him, he's just Kenneth Branagh being cheesy and British. I disagree with that, but there we are. And now, well, listeners, and me too. And I'm conscious we've actually gone on for a long time. I hope this is satisfying your Dunkirk urges. Uh, I'm sorry if we feel we haven't covered anything. In short, I, I thought I liked it, but. I'd still give it a B, to be honest, because it's not the kind of film I'm desperate to watch again. Uh, and I think the IMAX was as big a part of it as the film itself. I'm going to give it a B plus, and I think the plus is down to the production design. I thought the look of the film, the the money spent on costumes and set design, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, was fantastic. Uh, I wouldn't want to see it anytime soon, but I thought as a, a cinematic experience. Yeah, notable. Nice. Okay, now we're going to cover your emails and things. Listeners, I really apologise if you've already had enough of Dunkirk, but I feel like we're providing a service here to (laughs) to all those who've been in touch and wanted us to see it. So let's go through some emails and tweets, and we do have a few. And just to say, this means that our actual email segment will be much shorter because we've done it all here. So here we go. One from Rodney. Hi, guys. Went to see The Joy of Dunkirk. From a visual point of view, it was very nice to watch. More of a documentary-style shot, which was nice, but turning it into a good story was tough. 
Biggest annoyance for me was the music. Loud, annoying, built suspense, but it was the same thing over and over again for everything. It's looping, wasn't it? Well, yeah, did not enjoy this part. Also another annoyance, for there being 400,000 troops, it only looked like there was a couple of hundred. The shooting of the airplane scenes was really nicely done, apart from one at the end, but, you know, let me know your thoughts on that. He says, this is presumably Tom Hardy when the propeller's gone, flying across the beach. Did you not like that? I like that. Well, Rodney says he didn't like it. Uh, I thought it was okay. I thought it was... Well, what, what's weird about that? It was that it almost felt like Chris Nolan was providing some kind of symbolism, especially when the plane is burning at the end and the troops are coming. And the, the last shot is of a plane burning. And I kind of thought, what's, he, what's that supposed to mean? Because you don't end a film like that unless isn't that's it, supposed to communicate something. Isn't it meant to be like victory and defeat and everything? I don't know. Is it? Yeah, I think captured that's the by whole... the troops. What was victorious about that? Well, the fact that he managed to do... He ended his uh, plane trip on his own terms and they didn't get his spitfire and he he was victorious in the sense they landed and everything mm. and he didn't crash so even though he sacrificed his uh yeah i think i think there's more to it it's, okay. it's all right, all right. It, yeah all right i'm all not right. saying all it's right. good all but right. Right. all right all right <laughs> yeah Roddy carries on another thing that annoyed me was the little titles at the start this is the black screen white text that you so love phil uh, is that what he means, or does he mean the one which said this is number one, land, number two? Oh, no, he does, yes. Can't remember what they said. I think it was like number one, uh, day one, or whatever it is, number two, day one, and three, one hour. Didn't really get these at all. Maybe it was setting out the time frame of the three stories, but it wasn't very clear. No, it wasn't but- very clear. You took a while to piece it together. I even knew about this going into the film. That was the only thing I had heard, was that he was telling in three strands mm. of different time lengths. I found, ultimately, the chronological thing didn't really work out. The thing is, I just thought the title cards are irrelevant because it's obvious what happens eventually, isn't it? But you have to piece it together, I think. I don't think it's from the... But the title cards don't help you do that, so they're actually an irrelevance. I I think they didn't need to be there. Uh, He says the jumping back and forth through time annoyed me also. Do you know what, Ronnie? Actually, I thought you were going to talk about the black screen with the white text because I thought there was an immediate grammatical mistake, unless I've misunderstood this, (laughs) because I thought about it for a while and it slightly wrecked my, like, scene-setting moment. Not that I'm, you know, amazing at grammar because I think I get things wrong sometimes, definitely. Sometimes. That probably was a grammatical mistake there. (laughs) Mm. But it said the enemy have. And I thought when it's the definite article, the enemy, it should be the enemy has, not the enemy have. We'll lead it up to our listeners, any English professors out there. It's just curious to me. And that was the, those, are the, those are the first words that you see. And I thought, oh, hang on. <laughs> so was, that was a shame. Anyway, uh, I was a fan of seeing certain things from several perspectives. He goes on, like watching the dogfight in a cockpit and then watching them fight from sea level. CGI has become scarily good, although apparently it's not CGI. It might be some of it, but I think as much as possible was shot in real life. Sure. I think the movie shows a real sense of actual events with the fear and chaos. Nice movie, but story wasn't really there for me. It was just missing something I can't put my finger on. I had high hopes with that opening sequence. Yeah, we're agreeing on that. The street level shooting, nicely shot, well worked. But that was all we saw of the actual street warfare. Thought they missed out by not using more of this. And he goes on to say, we'll try and review some more movies when I get around to seeing them. Thanks, Rodney. It would have been interesting to see the the enemy perspective as they attack the beach uh, and sort of the surrounding um, battlements against the French and seeing the progress they were making there. But maybe that's the reason why we didn't see that was because they literally just halted. Yeah, and, I mean, I, I didn't think, really know why that was the case. Why would they not just swarm in and destroy all of the people? Well, in uh, on the beach. Yeah, I, I think did. they were trying to do that, but they were they were sustaining heavy losses. And from a, a strategic viewpoint, 
Like why why bother when you can pick them off using the planes? Well, I don't know. I think the film or maybe you should can have starve them out. That kind of thing. should have taught you that or explained that or addressed that. This is one of my gripes: is the fact that it was very clearly not wanting to be a typical historical film. But I quite like the fact that in historical films you find out information, you learn something from watching it. I think this taught you the experience of the soldiers, but it didn't teach you the event that well. Yeah, fair enough. I guess that's probably not on the cards. That's probably not what he wanted. Mm. Uh, okay. The Natural got in touch, Steer Super Betty Bros. Having heard Christopher Nolan talking a little bit about making Dunkirk, I was excited to think it might give me more insight and an understanding of a very significant historical moment. Just like you're saying, Phil, he'd spoken about a veteran who had a pocket watch with a very loud, interestingly rhythmic tick, and he wanted it to be used to inspire the score. It's a bit of a gimmick, isn't it, in my opinion? Sad to say, the music was one of the most intrusive, irritating elements to the whole experience. I'd love to see it all again without any music. Well, that would be fascinating, because I don't think... Uh, the film would achieve would it its f- goals. Even flatter, do you think? I don't. Well, I don't know. I just think Christopher Nolan. We've talked about this so many times. He wants the music to be part of his filmmaking process, doesn't he? He obviously has it in his mind, which is why all his films have a score that sounds almost exactly the same. It's always the same approach, always the same style. I've been complaining about it since Batman Begins. So none of these complaints are new to me. It's kind of music to my ears to hear other people say it, mm. and I feel for Hans Zimmer. I don't know what's happened to the guy. Go back to Lion King, mate. Uh, he was good then. Uh, okay, the opening scenes he carries on gave me high hopes of being drawn into the drama from an individual's perspective and indeed the story of the lead pair took us through some well-told and unexpected scenes however very quickly we were shown several different characters and situations presumably with the idea of holding several storylines together in our minds as the overall drama unfolded the white titles saying weekday hour before still don't really make much sense to me and they contributed nothing to my understanding as we said we agree Mm. i found it too much and too confusing so that i never really had time to get inside the emotions of any of the characters by contrast i I think this parallel storytelling technique was used very well in Love Actually. What a comparison. Uh, allowing viewers to respond in different ways. I guess like me, many people have their favourite storyline. Example, mine is the Portuguese girl and Colin Firth in Love Actually. That oh, right. is not Dunkirk. <laughs> yeah. uh, clearly distinguished, but still well integrated in the whole. Certainly, it was tense with the threat of air attack and torpedoes, yet I didn't really feel moved in the way I expected I might be. Nevertheless, there was one thread which came to a filmically brilliant conclusion and has stuck in my mind more than any other, namely the Spitfire piloted by Tom Hardy, who seems to have a career partly made of acting behind a mask. <laughs> Indeed, Christopher Nolan has said Tom Hardy is the best eye actor he's ever seen, and right. the, his ability to communicate with his eyes is why he was cast as Bane in wonder, the Batman wonder film. wonder how Tom Hardy feels about that. I think it's a compliment, isn't it? When you've got none of your face to emote... Except for your eyes, good on him. He managed to convey stuff. Fair enough. Uh, Telling me he goes on quite a lot of the final part of this thread was in silence and the better for it. That's Tom Hardy's pilot. No problem with Harry Styles, by the way. Strangest of all was that such a big film, in quotes, left the impression of a small event, which it definitely wasn't. Kenneth Branagh's character made reference to the number evacuated in an almost throwaway line. In my opinion, the scene in Atonement did it better and more movingly. Ooh. Interesting. Yeah, I can't remember that. I have seen it with James McAvoy and Kieran. That's Riley, the that long it. shot. It was an extended shot which kind of has James McAvoy walk through the beach right. and see all the people sort of waiting oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting that both Rodney and The Natural have made comments about how few people there seem to be on the beach. And that was something I basically, because I read those things, I was looking out for. And I, I kind of disagree with. I just thought I was overwhelmed by the scale of it. And I did believe it. Because actually... Yeah, actually, it would have not made sense to have a heaving mass of people. But maybe there are some historical photos which prove me wrong and Mm. and Christopher Nolan too. (laughs) 
Okay, moving on. One here from Confucius. Dunkirk, although a masterpiece on an historical event, thanks for including the Anne for historical, very correct, I felt that there's something not quite right about Dunkirk after thinking it through. Firstly, yay, Christopher Nolan and Hans Zimmer, you did it again. Super compressed sound and music, hard to hear, understand dialogue as a result of that. Secondly, sarcasm, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually thought the dialogue was clearer this time around, but it's still super compressed, yeah. Secondly, as a war film, it somehow lacks the intensity in comparison to other war films. Some of the sequences were great in showing the audience how fragile one's life is in times of war for example the opening sequence again everyone loves that and one of the ship sinking sequences but overall i often felt like a bystander just watching a story rather than engaging with the emotions of the characters yeah fair comments very consistent themes coming out from it's funny listeners. isn't it i thought we were going to be in the minority and people would think oh they're just being sort of grumpy old men who didn't like the film because it was a bit loud and a bit too confusing or something like that but it seems like lots of the same things are popping yeah, up yeah no i think that's true and i think it's interesting that that f- first scene has got so much love from people and to be honest I, you know like i said with the spitfires it's because there's such a well-worn precedent we kind of know what to expect uh, in street warfare from the world war Two, right from things like band of brothers and everything else so in a weird way i think that resonates with people a lot more because it's kind of a proven thing whereas and the loudness else... of the guns i remember yeah. so so vividly remind me to do a bonus at the very end of this okay wow we're long running really long on this uh esther dunker we went to see this on the first day it was out at the waterloo imax which is where we saw it uh, yes it was definitely worth seeing it there. Having the planes flying across the colossal screen was incredible, and it was a really good level of very loud. Interestingly, a guy said, oh, right, a guy stood at the front and introduced the movie. That's what we're talking about, that, as they are prone to do, uh, and specifically mentioned to us the director himself had sat in that theatre and set the mix. So if you thought the sound was too loud... Take it out the Christopher Nolan. I did think there was points where it was too loud. I just thought, oh, this is uncomfortable. But then, obviously, that's what he was going for. So It's quite a rare thing for a director to sit in a specific cinema like that, I guess. Maybe I don't know that's true, but it's quite fun to know that that was where he mixed it, right? And you can't, you can't say it was wrong or projected no, incorrectly or anything like that. that's what he wanted. What is funny is apparently uh, veterans, her, when they saw the movie, they said, oh, I think those guns were louder than the actual Dunkirk. <laughs> really? And Christopher <laughs> Nolan just thought that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe you should turn it down a little bit then. That's cracking. Uh, Okay, in terms of plot, she goes on. I didn't mind there wasn't a great deal of it and the dialogue was minimal. My favourite parts were definitely the air bits and my least favourite, the sea. I wasn't 100% convinced by Mark Rylance and co. I know what you mean, Esther. I don't think that's his fault. I think it's what he was given, basically. I think he's overrated. Ooh, controversial. uh, I wondered whether these characters could have done with a bit more backstory, as I guess they're where most of us would place ourselves in the movie. It just felt like you didn't care or know enough about the younger boy to sympathise when something happens to him. Spoiler, yeah, he dies. (laughs) We, we spoiled it and we agree Esther I did like the performance of the blonde boy on the boat though and on a, a couple of other notes it was great to have Tom Hardy doing a tough voice <laughs> rather than his I'm on rumbling. him yes he was nice and posh wasn't he it's true uh, and the blonde pilot as well Scottish boy Harry Styles was fine but definitely distracting so I wondered why they had him over any other actor well Esther I think probably for the same reason there was no blood young audience I disagree I think genuinely he fit the bill um, he was fine yeah. I think he fit the bill of being a man definitely a man but at the same time looking very young and very boyish I think that's kind of a choice that he, he was making exactly the right sort of character to suggest throwing a man off a boat to his death <laughs> yeah <laughs> that same kind of self-centered miserable approach to life I can't yeah. imagine One Direction fans wanting to see Dunkirk <laughs> because of Harry Styles I think you're completely wrong about that film yeah. we'll find out uh, I was a little confused by the timescales. Yeah, uh, we all are. Yeah, I could tell others in the cinema around me were definitely not following stuff. 
And for me, the film walks a fine line of verging on the too patriotic slash cheesy, as you were saying. That's what I feel, yeah. Uh, but I think just about kept it on the right side. The very slow version of Nimrod, oh, I, yeah, from Enigma Variations, was a little annoying for me as I was just waiting and waiting for it to resolve to the right chords. Well, I don't doubt, Esther, that Hans Zimmer is patting himself on the back uh, for exactly that. Uh, you know, Phil, the joke I was going to do, but I think we don't have enough time for, was I was going to illustrate just how artistic Hans Zimmer's choice to slow down that piece of music was uh, by slowing down the autoglass repair, autoglass replace jingle. Oh, please see that at the bow. This is the very end of the... how, just how moving. <laughs> Put that right <laughs> that at the is. end of this episode. I Should think I that'd that? be fun. All right, yeah. let's do that. Uh, autoglass to... <laughs> repair, autoglass replace. Uh, all round she goes on. I think it was a great spectacle and so good to see in IMAX, but I probably wouldn't see it again. For those of a more nervous disposition, there were also a few pretty harrowing scenes on the boats which are hard to watch. Yes, a lot of drowning uh, and claustrophobia, which is not pleasant. Disaster movie. Yeah, I guess that's what he wanted to show. I mean, I haven't seen that side of Dunkirk, really. I didn't know how in danger the boats were. And I think that was almost a success of Christopher Nolan's to show that even when you were getting away, you weren't really getting away. I thought that was clever, but kind of, yeah, not nice to, to experience. And that is the end of the emails. Now, a couple of quick tweets to motor through. Don't worry, listeners, we're nearly in the clear, nearly evacuating... <laughs> <laughs> Dunkirk movie review. Uh, Alistair got in touch, saw Dunkirk earlier, and have to say it's the best film of 2017 so far, the best war film ever, easy Nolan's best. I mean, there's a lot of bests in there, Alistair. I think it's a bit early to say. I would disagree. I think Band of Brothers, I think, is a better war Not a film, piece. though. Not a film, but a filmic esque i thought uh, you know saving Pride ryan is more impressive i think Hexel ridge is more impressive yeah i, I think they deal with different themes and, and they're richer basically than this uh, he goes on for all those people who say nolan's films are cold and bleak if you're not moved by patriotic fervor in the last 20 minutes then you are dead is what he says <laughs> apparently i'm dead inside there <laughs> that's quite a, a firm thing to say alistair and i think phil and i would disagree with your sentiment there i don't think i was moved by patriotic fervor not patriotic anyway i certainly felt I did feel emotional at the thought of all these ordinary people risking their lives to save people and that that is a touching thing and I think if you don't at least recognize how wonderful it is to see people uh, you know serving others over and above themselves that is always moving and should always be moving but again I don't know that I call it patriotic yeah and just to be clear because I did say oh, I didn't I wasn't stirred it was more the film technique and what Christopher Nolan was trying to make me feel that I didn't like the actual event of course is patriotic and a wonderful moment in British history in some ways I just think display it simply and honestly like the rest of the film is trying to be and it would have been much more wonderful in my opinion yeah I know what you mean man uh, Alistair goes on to praise the soundtrack can't agree with you there Alistair he says he's been listening to it non-stop don't do that it'll ruin your brain <laughs> uh, and he also highlights that there was a cameo from Michael Caine uh, continuing his straight shot of being in Christopher Nolan's films he was the uh, one of the air tower guys wasn't he yeah as a voice yeah I didn't notice that myself probably a good thing final one Nicholas hashtag Dunkirk is a film like no other hopefully Nolan will get quite a few Oscar nominations do you agree Phil Technical stuff, yeah. I think it, as a film, it's a very impressive piece of film. As a as a story, as a as a movie, less impressive. I think it'll probably win for sound. That'd be my yeah, guess. Yeah, and and production design, I think. Mm, but there's not that much to produce because it was just beaches and like it's uniforms, wasn't it? More than anything else. Yeah, and like the whole dressing of the ships and all sorts. Yeah, we'll, we'll wait and see. All right, that really is it. Phil, you had a bonus and then we must move on because I'll tell you, the pre-edit clock is running at 46 minutes. Oh my goodness. Do we need to make it a separate episode almost? Possibly. Well, I'll leave that to you, Mr. Editor Man. My bonus was my experience of watching this film in the IMAX. I had the full experience, all the sound, all the visuals, etc., etc. I also had a lady on my right who, whenever there was a loud sound, would visibly and audibly <laughs> gasp 
and jump. <laughs> oh, 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 after every single gun. So when there was that bit with the target practice where they're shooting the, the boat and they're inside it and they're thinking, oh, they, they're shooting us. We need to, you know, there's a couple of shots spaced yeah, yeah, out yeah. every single time. <laughs> Even when the first couple of ones, she was still like, oh, like, I'm thinking about machine guns. Was she going, oh, yeah. along with the... <laughs> it was, it was, it was slightly distracting and quite funny and of course the movie is not a funny movie no. but having this person jolt and jump That's I felt classic. sorry for her partner who was sort of holding her on her shoulder oh. and it just well it was <laughs> yes that was my experience as one of the emailers said you know maybe not one if you've got a nervous disposition indeed right Dunkirk out <laughs> Yeah, so 46 minutes is too long to include it with the rest of the stuff, Phil. Let's make this a mini-episode. Okay. Right, Right, that means we've got to re-record all our intros and stuff. Just putting people into the post-prod. Oh. (laughs) Uh, Listeners, keep your thoughts coming in. If you've got anything extra now to say, uh, our views, then we'd love to hear it. Um, Send it our way and we'll pop it in the next show. But I hope you enjoyed that Dunkirk special. There you go. (laughs) 